Okay, everybody. I know a lot of people are still checking out right now, but what we want to do is, is go ahead and get started on our closing ceremony. So come on in. And I'm Tina, the compulsive overeater. Welcome. All righty. I would like to ask Julie A., our signs and decorations chair, to come on up. Okay. Hi, my name is Julie. I'm a compulsive overeater. It actually says that here. Um, I am, oh, I'm sorry, this is from the For Today, page 252. And it says, I am thankful for what I have received in Overeaters Anonymous. But if I am to keep it, I must remember my sisters and brothers who are still in the chains of compulsive overeating. I'm willing to break my anonymity to share my experience with those who are still sick. I'm thankful today for what I have been for what I ha, what I have received, but for that I have been relieved of my chains, and that I have discovered a higher power, experienced a spiritual awakening, and can tell my story to others. For today, it is through the love and friendship of others in OA that I have found freedom. Thank you. That's wonderful. Thank you, Julie. So I'd like to invite Nancy up. Hi. Once again, I'm going to come and I'm going to look at all your lovely faces. (laughs) Yeah, hi. I'm Nancy and I am a compulsive overeater. They feel pretty teary-eyed. This last time I'm going to be introducing some speakers that have lived with me in my heart for several months. Uh, wow. uh, so uh, our first speaker is local. She's from Oakland. I've known her for several years uh, because I've gone over to the 12-step marathon, once again, 12-step marathon in Oakland. And uh, over the years, uh, she's come to San Francisco to speak, you know, at meetings. And then uh, when I went to a retreat, she was at that retreat, and I looked, I was in the midst of dealing with what I need to deal with, and then I took her aside to say, "Could could I have some time with you? So that experience that I had with her at that retreat, just to serve that 10, 15 minutes was so powerful. And I just thought, like, this is a person that someday if I have a chance to have her be a speaker, because I love finding speakers, have her be a speaker, that I, I, she has so much to share. So let's invite Merit to that. see me over the thingy? Okay, good. Okay, good morning, everybody. My name is Merritt. I'm a bulimic and a gum addict. Everybody. I love listening to the LA podcasts, and when I get nervous about speaking, which I do no matter how many people are in the room, I remember this one speaker said that she was freaking out about speaking, and she said to her sponsor, I'm really scared I'm speaking in front of a meeting, and she's like, these people eat out of the garbage. And so... (laughs) 
Now I'm just like, all right, there's just a lot of people that eat other garbage, not just a few, so I'm going to be okay. Um, anyway, as I said, I'm a bulimic and a gum addict, and uh, some of you may know what that is. Someone once thought I said gummatic as if it was some sort of an illness, which it kind of is. Um, and so I just want to clarify that I would chew gum compulsively pretty much any time I wasn't eating. I had gum in my mouth. And um, I, this, is, this is my disease, and maybe you'll be able to relate, maybe not. I was in Tahiti, Tahiti for my honeymoon. I mean, I don't, I, even if you never went there, the word kind of conjures what it is, right? Just like tropical and gorgeous and sun and beaches and amazing. And what I did on my honeymoon was drive around this little tiny island trying to get as much gum as I possibly could because I, they didn't really have that much gum there and they didn't have that many convenience stores. So we drove and drove and drove and got all the gum that they had in Tahiti. I bought all of the gum in Tahiti when I was there. And then I gave it to my new husband, and I was like, hey, hold on to the gum. I'm going to need it for the airport. So don't let me have the gum because I need it for later on. Within an hour, if I lasted that long, I was like, please give me the gum. I'm going to please have my gum, please. And so by the time I got to the airport, it was days later. The gum was long gone. Um, but this is what my disease is like. I have a compulsion. I have an obsession. I'm out of my mind. That's what my disease is like. Um, I've been coming here since 1988, so for a really long time, and um, as of a few days from now, if all goes well, I'll have 26 and a half years of abstinence. I can't really say that without crying, but I'm going to try and pull myself together. Um, but I, I never thought I would have abstinence, and I went to a therapist for a few years. She was an eating disorder specialist, and she told me that I was never going <laughs> to she told me, you will never stop doing this. She's like, maybe you'll only end up having to do it a couple times a week, but you will always do this for the rest of your life. So, I mean, I really thought I was going to do this for the rest of my life. Um, what it was like was um, I was raised to believe that the most important thing about me and about everybody was how you look. Um, your physical appearance, kind of your emotional appearance. So, I mean, I remember like every morning walking downstairs and there was sort of a critique about what I had on and like, oh, you know, your shirt has a hole in it right there. Or, like, oh, yeah, your socks are dirty. And um, when I would come home from college, you know, I would be terrified because the first thing that would be noticed when I got off the plane was how much I weighed. And so it would be like, oh, you look like you gained weight. Oh, it looked like you lost weight. And so I'd be in a panic trying to control whatever I thought was going on. Um, I had to finally tell my mother that she was no longer allowed to talk about my body or my weight, period, end of story. It's none of her business. And um, it was such a relief when she finally stopped. She actually did, which was cool. Um, but the other thing is that I, you know, in our family, it had to look like you were okay all the time. And I'm not now I'm not talking about appearance, but just um, feelings. You had to look like you felt good all the time. You had to look like you were happy all the time. You had to look like you had your stuff together all the time. I'm going to try really hard not to cuss. That came close. Um, and so, you know, I thought, I honestly thought when I was afraid, when I was angry, when I, I that there was something wrong with me. And I was a kid, I, ha I have a lot of energy, I'm really out there all the time, even now. And I would have fits and I would scream and cry and lay on the floor and kick. And my mother would just be like, oh my God, I don't know what to do with you. And I thought, well, there's something in there that nobody knows how to handle. I can't handle this. There must be something wrong with me. And I must, I mean, honestly, I felt like I had evil parts or something. So um, it was, uh, I mean, a kind of a good breeding ground for this disease, if I think about it. And um, 
I, yeah, I later found out once I became actively bulimic that my mom, when I started abusing laxatives and I would come home from college, I found all these laxatives in the closet and I kind of realized like, oh yeah, she bakes a lot and she eats a lot and she has laxatives. This makes sense. So I didn't know it, but I came by this even more naturally than I thought. Um, And what it was like was absolutely miserable. I mean, I know you guys have been hearing about it all weekend. I'm not telling you anything that you don't know. Um, but this disease is so life killing. I, um, I mean, I just remember my life being how much I weigh, how much food can I get, how much food can I throw up, how many calories do I eat? Very hard to keep track of when you throw up. Who could possibly know? So it was just like this ongoing game. Like, well, I think I ate that and then I got rid of that. And maybe that got rid of that much. And maybe it was that many calories. I don't know. And so, I mean, it was like, I I was in college when when I became bulimic, and I mean, who could possibly remember anything? I don't remember. I honestly do not remember a single thing I learned in college. I just spent the whole time obsessing about my body and my weight and food and getting rid of food and getting more food. Um, it started out where maybe I did it one day, you know, a week, and then of course it got to be one every day, and then it got to be several times a day. And you know, they talk about this; it's a progressive illness, and it got progressively worse. Um, if I had had the wherewithal, I might have killed myself, but it put, would have taken more than I had to give. I just was kind of going through my life. Um, it was the thing about bulimia for me is that I didn't want anyone to know, so that was the whole other part. There was the whole like, oh, I'm getting away with something. I like getting away with stuff. I still like getting away with stuff. It's a, like a hallmark, a hallmark of my disease, so I try not to get away with stuff. Or if I do, I tell people it's really bad. I'll tell my boss stupid stuff I do all the time that she wouldn't know otherwise. And I, the other day, I walk in, I'm like, oh, I did this really stupid thing today, and I told her what it was. And so, but I mean, you know, the thing is that when I got here, I lied all the time. I was a total liar, and I'll get into that in a second. But um, for me, I had never heard of bulimia before. I didn't know it was a thing. I thought it was something I sort of came up with. Um, I didn't tell anybody about it, but at the same time, I knew something was horribly wrong. Um, I didn't know there was a word for it. So I um, thought, well, I must need help. And so I tried to go to therapy. I tried several therapists. Um, the, the one that really gave me a lot of help that I was just referencing was an eating disorder specialist. Um, I thought, well, she's a specialist. And what I thought was that she would, like, fix me, right? Like, you go there, and then they do whatever the hell they do, and then you get fixed, and you're done, and you're all better. And so I went, and I was like, well... I'm bulimic, and I actually like to move in about a year, so I want to be better by then. And um, I, you know, I mean, my life is actually really pretty good, but this just isn't working for me. And um, five years later, I wasn't better, and I was still seeing her, and I hadn't moved, and um, I was more sophisticated about talking about my feelings. I could talk really about my mother. I could tell you a lot of stuff about my mother. And I was, you know, it was kind of one of these, like, I was like, sitting there talking about my mother, my feelings, and blah, 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 blah. And in my head, I was like, oh, God, when I leave here, I'm going to go to that store on the corner and get that thing. And then when I leave, I think I'll go to that other place and get this other thing. And then I'll go home and I'll throw up. And then, I mean, and this is what it was. I'm paying to have this experience. And I also, um, I felt a little bit bad for her because I wasn't getting better and I didn't want her to feel bad about herself. She was a specialist and so every once in a while I would just say, oh, you know, I haven't binged and purged in a while. It's been a few weeks or it's been a month or like, how is she going to know, right? Because, I mean, the thing about bleemies doesn't necessarily show up on your body and so I just, every once in a while I'd throw that in and then I would go about my business and um, she didn't really have, like, 
so at one point she told me that she thought I should read this book called Thin Within. Um, and I was really excited to have something concrete that she told me to do. So I left. I went right to the store. I bought the book. I read the book. I was done with it in an hour, and then I had to wait a whole week to go talk to her about it. And I was so excited because it turns out, this is the thing, you guys, all you have to do is you rank your hunger on the scale from one to five. No, you rank your fullness on the scale from one to five. Five is too full. You're not supposed to eat till you're a five. You're only supposed to eat till you're a three. So I was like, oh, my God, I didn't know that. So I went to talk to her, and I was like, this is great. I had no idea. Here's what I want to know. How do you know when you're at a five? How do you? And she was like, what? You don't know how to tell when you're full? And I was like, what? I don't know how what? And she's like, well, you just eat a moderate amount of food. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And she was like, what do you mean? And I was like, you're a specialist. What? Like, it didn't make any sense. And so I just... I mean, it really wasn't until I got here that people got it. It was like, I, I don't have that part of me that knows when I'm hungry and when I'm full and when it might be a good idea to eat and when it might be a good idea to stop. And she clearly didn't get it. Um, I tried this other thing. Um, there was this woman that had a flyer on campus that said, have your cake and eat it too. I was like, yes, that sounds like what I want to do. And so there was three of us that went to her house. There was an anorexic, a bulimic, and a compulsive overeater. And she herself, this woman, was overweight. And so one day the activity was bring your favorite binge food, and we're going to eat it, whatever, serenely in front of each other and just enjoy it and savor it. Well, what kind of an idea, right? So we went, and I brought the thing, and it was like the start of my binge is what the thing was. And none of us ever went back after that. It was just like, oh, God, are you kidding me? This is absurd. I mean, you went there, and you ate the thing, and then you were like, oh, my God, I want a 1,000 of these. And then probably everybody left and did get a 1,000 of the things. So, um, you know, this was just the kind of thing people – I just felt very alone and misunderstood and um, – I didn't know what to do with myself, and I was miserable and resigned to this being what life was. And I worked in restaurants all the time, so basically it was like working in a bar if I was an alcoholic. So I ate all day long. I had to pay a lot of money when I get to step nine to the restaurants that I used to work in. Um, and so I forgot to set my timer. How am I doing for time? I just always talk about what it was like too long. All right. You'll put something on. Anyway, so what happened, long story short, is that I went to social work school, and um, I became someone that worked in the field of chemical dependency. So I was someone's counselor. They would go to this inpatient program, and I, I, me, I was their therapist. And so I would help them get better. And so let's just say it was... I mean, I actually love addicts. I love you guys. I love us. We're so cool. But I mean, so I love my clients. But I mean, let's be honest. They'd be there overnight. They'd have more recovery than me. And then they'd show up in the morning, and I was their counselor. And I would sit there and talk to them. And there was like this little gift shop. And I'd be thinking about what I was going to go get to eat in the gift shop. And I would, oh, boy. Okay. Anyway, I knew this was going to take longer than I wanted. Anyway. A lot of the people that worked at the program, all of the women, as far as I could tell, had eating disorders, and one by one they ended up going into inpatient treatment while we worked there. And I didn't go, but I had heard uh, all the clients talking about going to meetings, and they would come back and just be glowing and raving, and I was like, God, I wish they had that for me, and it turned out that they did. And so that's how I found out about this program. And um, I, uh, oh, she'll the sign. I came here. I did it because I wanted to get my therapist off my back because she was threatening to send me to inpatient treatment. Um, I, I don't. I, I mean, honestly, and I, 
I couldn't relate to anyone. I was in Michigan at the time. I was a college student. Everyone was much older than me. There weren't, no one said out loud that they were bulimic. I didn't see myself in the room. Um, the only way I felt like I belonged was when I heard at the end, welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, welcome home. And I got goosebumps and I thought, well, I guess I'm supposed to be here. And, um, I kept coming back no matter what. Um, I want to talk about the fact that I had a really hard time being honest about my food. And so I um, lied about my abstinence for an, a year and a half. If you happen to notice, I was here for longer than I was abstinent. Um, and it's just a really important part of my story because every time, and this goes back the whole way, I thought I could stop whenever I wanted. I thought I would never binge again the next time, like ever. Every time I thought I'm never going to do this again. And so what <laughs> happened was I um, came into a little community where pe there was, it was a Gracie community. And so it was little and new and everybody needed sponsors. And so after 21 days you had to sponsor. <laughs> and I was like, well, I binged yesterday, but I'm not going to binge again today because I never am going to binge again the next day. So even though I wasn't honest yesterday, I'll just be honest tomorrow and I'll tell my sponsor and then I'll be okay. Well, I did this for six months. And so after 21 days, I had to sponsor. And after a few months, I started speaking at meetings. Can you imagine? This is the last place on the block, you guys. If you're lying here, you are screwed. There is nowhere else to go. I was screwed. And I had always, you know, there are, I mean, there are literal physical reasons that you can die from bulimia, and I would never believe them. I was just, I would make my therapist tell me like once a month, can you tell me again how this could kill me? And I didn't think it was true, but I finally got to a point where I knew I could lie myself to death because I was not availing myself of the help that was here. I was lying to my sponsor. I was lying to my therapist. I was lying to my friends, and I was miserable, and I wished I was dead. And um, I finally got to the point where I was like, I, I'm going to lie myself to death, and I will die because I'm, I can't stop. And so um, I finally went to a... This is I went to an AA meeting because I was I couldn't say in an OA meeting that I was lying about my absence and I grabbed someone and I was like what am I supposed to do I'm lying about being abstinent and this is terrible and she was like you just have to tell the truth like tell the truth and I was like what you know because I was so grandiose I'm like but my poor therapist she thinks she's done a good job with me and her practice my clothes she's a specialist and like what about my sponsor she thought she helped me she didn't help me and. All these people, I thought, were almost certainly going to fall down and drop dead. And um, what ended up happening instead is that, of course, I went to a meeting, and I said, I'll be the speaker. And I spoke, and I was like, you guys, I've been lying for six months. I'm not abstinent. And everybody, like, hugged me and congratulated me and said how wonderful I was. And I couldn't believe it. But And everyone was glad and grateful and excited. But it wasn't until then that I could even start to be abstinent. There was nothing that I – before that, no. So um, – Anyway, I'd like to say I was absent from that minute on. That wasn't the case, but in the interest of time, I won't get into all the sordid details. But suffice it to say, if you're lying about your food, I say to my sponsees now, I don't care what you're eating. Eat whatever, whatever it is. You eat that. Just tell me. Tell me what you're eating. It's okay. And I don't know if they do or not. I hope so. But um, I just, if I say nothing else of any importance, I feel like that's just been so critical to my recovery. So now I tell my boss stupid things I do without her even asking, and she wouldn't even know otherwise. Um, because, the, um, so the way that I work my program today, I'm really doing better on time. 
I go to meetings. I go to two or three meetings every week. I would like to go to more. I'm working on that. I started working full-time not too long ago, and I'm just still blown away by how much time full-time is. Um, <laughs> crazy. I have had a sponsor ever since I came into program, and I can't imagine not working with a sponsor. I've been really lucky to have people that have worked with me for years and years and years, although I'm currently working with someone who's kind of newer. Um, and I just love having someone that gets me, knows my stuff from my four steps, knows my stuff from hearing me all the time, calls me on stuff. I know now if I have that feeling inside, like, ooh, that I probably need to tell my sponsor whatever that ooh thing is. And I do, and I feel better, and I never knew that that was going to happen. Uh, I've always done service in the program. I'm here because I didn't want to come. <laughs> I was like, I was like, well, they asked me to do service, and you do service when someone asks you to do service, and you do service because that keeps the program going, and you do service because service is slimming. And I mean, there's so many things about it. And so I've been the chair of the intergroup in my area for a while. Um, I always sponsor. I love having sponsees. I can't believe I would have something that someone would want to have. You know, like just that is reason alone to do it. Um, I write gratitude lists every day. I pray. I meditate. Um, basically, I do what the program suggests. And, you know, when I first got here and they said, take what you like and leave the rest, I was like, you know, I don't really like pretty much any of it. And it didn't work. So it turns out if you don't do it, it doesn't work. Uh, and I didn't know that. So they, they're so sweet. They say, these are suggested steps of recovery. It's not a suggestion. If you want to get better, then you do the steps. That's actually how it works. Um, I don't know. I have just, I, I really want to talk about what it's like now. Have you held up any signs yet that I missed? Okay. All right. I usually am such a speed talker. I'm going to... I'm going to slow down. So, um, well, and just to say, so since I've been in this program, I've been married. I have two children. Um, I have work that's incredibly meaningful to me, which I'll talk about. Uh, I have a life, and a life that works, and a life that has meaning. I never thought I would have those things. Okay, I have 15 minutes left. <laughs> um, a couple of years ago, I went to see a therapist, which God knows I've been doing almost the whole entire time, but um, a new therapist. And the reason that I went is because uh, my second child was about to leave for college, and I knew that the job that I'd been working in for a long time was not the right job for me to be in, and I was really just too afraid to leave it. And I'd been very unhappy in my marriage, and I knew that something was probably going to happen with that. And hence, I didn't know where I was going to live. So basically, every single thing about my life was on the verge of changing, and I was terrified. And um, I sobbed the whole entire time. I couldn't even talk. I was, and then the next time after that, and the next time after that. And I mean, I, I've just been scared out of my mind. And what happened was, first of all, those three things did not happen at the same time. That was huge. Um, my daughter left for school, and I miss her. But you know what? She was kind of uh, challenging in the last couple of years, and there was tension between us. And it actually felt a little bit nice to have some distance from that and to feel liked in my own house, even if it was just my dogs. I was happy to just have my dogs and myself like myself, and I was okay with that. And she did really well, and she was thriving, and she was happy, and it was like, you know, I'm happy for her. This is okay. I'm okay with this. And so here's, no, you know, terror number one. I'm okay with that. 
Uh, I was working with adolescents for years. That was my career, and I love teenagers, crazy as it sounds. I love them, and it was really meaningful work, but it was no longer the right job for me. I was there altogether for 14 years, and it was part-time, and there were just a variety of reasons it wasn't the best, mainly the principal, nothing personal, of course. And um, But I was convinced that I could not get any other job, that I had no skills, that there was nothing I could do. I was just, I had myself boxed into a corner, and I was so upset. And at one point, I realized that whatever the thing is that I wanted to do was going to be, it was going to have to be with dogs and people. I wanted some sort of social worky dog thing. And, um, <laughs> but, and that was all I knew. That's really not very specific if you think about it. So anyway, um, I... I found the thing. I was so excited. I walked into this business, and it was t- training dogs and dog thing, and I was like, oh, my God, and I had the feeling, and I was like, thank you, God, this is the thing, and I pursued it, and I it was a franchise, and I bought in, and I went to the three-week training, and, I mean, there were all these things along the way that was like, see, this is definitely what the thing is supposed to be, and this is so cool, and this is so great, and I go to meetings, and everyone was like, I'm so happy for you, and I was like, I'm so happy for me, and... And I went to the training, and one of the reasons I was so excited is because this business talked about um, things that were incredibly important values of mine, like giving back to the community and making people feel good and giving good service and being environmentally friendly, and went to the training, and it turned out they didn't even have a recycling bin in the facility at all. And when they talked about, like, the paint, and they and I was like, oh, where do you get the environmentally paint-friendly paint? And they were like, oh, it doesn't matter. Just get whatever paint you want. And they were talking about... Um, upselling things, which I, I'm a social worker, I don't know, but basically you're trying to sell stuff to people they don't want or necessarily need. And so I would supposedly be telling them that they should buy these products for their dogs and buy these lessons for their dogs. And meanwhile, I was not a dog trainer, and they said they, they were going to train me to be a dog trainer, but I wasn't trained to be a dog trainer, but I was supposed to pretend that I knew how to do that and take people's money for it and then sell them more stuff. And I was so upset and horrified by this, and it was so expensive, and I told everyone about it, and I got home, and I prayed about it, and I just had to say, I cannot do this business. Like, this is not who I am anymore, and it was such a an affirmation of my recovery that I couldn't be in a job every day where I was lying and pretending to be something that I wasn't and trying to get stuff from people that they didn't want to give and that they shouldn't give. And um, I really felt such relief that I didn't do that, even though it seemed really tremendous. And anyway, long story short, I ended up, um, and I'm only saying this because now I got myself, um, because I, I have this tremendous job now, which I'll talk a little bit about, but I ended up at this job, and the story of how I got it is also amazing, but I don't have time for that, but I'm um, helping veterans with PTSD get dogs that we're helping to train become service dogs, and it's the most incredible, (laughs) every day I'm just like, how could I be getting paid to do this? This is the most, this is the coolest thing a person could possibly do. And um, anyway, so there's one, two things down, right? My daughter left. I'm okay. My son already gone. I'm okay with that. I got this amazing job. And, um, you know, you guys, I haven't been happy in my marriage for a really long time. And I knew. I knew I wasn't happy. I knew it wasn't the right thing, sort of. But it was like, oh, but oh, but the kid, oh, but money, oh, but what? Uh, you're supposed to stay married. You're supposed to try. I'm supposed to, acceptance is the answer. I can accept that this is what it is and work on myself. And I did all of those things. And I went to couples counseling forever and ever. And it didn't get better. And Finally, something happened, and I was just like, it was my bottom, and I was like, I, can't, I don't want to be talked to like that ever again in my life. I don't ever want to hear anyone say that to me. And, um, 
You know, I've been, I, it was actually interesting, a reading recently was talking just about that we have instincts and then we start thinking. And that's where we get into trouble, right? <laughs> and so it's like God is just like, hello, Merit, hello, 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 hello. And I was just like, well, what about this? And what about that? And oh my God, and I'm afraid and I can't do that. And I was like, I, I, I give up. I mean, right? Step one, I surrender. I cannot do this anymore. And so, um, so I said that I would like to have a separation, and I've been separated for some months now, and I am literally happier than I've ever been in my entire life. I'm not exaggerating. And, you know, I think I, what I'm learning is, you know, there's God's will, and then there's us being open to doing God's will. And um, God has so many wonderful things in store for me that I can't even imagine. I have a really cool story about that. But um, I have been working on my relationship with God for a while now, and I realize that what works for me is to have, I mean, we're making the whole thing up, right, the whole God thing. It's whatever the hell we think it is. So I'm just like, all right, well, I'm going to pick a God that says really nice things to me and is really tender and loving with me because that feels good when I hear it. And so, you know, when it says, um, God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I think from God, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I will love you until you can love yourself. I want you to be happy, joyous, and free. And it's like, it's that simple. If I'm not happy, joyous, and free, then that's not God's will for me. So what the hell is going on? Um, I, I'll tell this story because I love it so much. I, I took from a story, I won't go into the background of it, but um, the, of us going, any of us, me, because it's me, but saying to God, like, you know, you could help me here if you want to. And, and the answer just being like, of course, of course. Not like, oh, yeah, like, of course. Almost like, what took you so long to ask me? Of course I want to help you. And um, I was sharing about it at a meeting, and this newcomer, it was so sweet of her, called me about a month later, and she said, oh, uh, she was at a restaurant, and she had leftovers. And so she didn't really know what to do with her leftovers because, right, what are you going to do? It wasn't on her food plan, and it's extra food, and it's food, oh, my God. And so she prayed for a second, and she realized she was going to take them home. And she walked outside the restaurant, and there was this homeless woman sitting there. And she said to the woman, oh, I have this food. Would you like to have it? And the woman said, course and um it's just it's like of course i didn't talk about my food you guys what i want to say about the food for me is that um i have a beautiful abstinence by which i mean i have i don't obsess about food i don't feel compulsive around food a couple weeks ago my son who's 22 he said to me mom where's the fruit salad that was in the fridge and I was like, oh, I don't know. Oh, I said, oh, I finished it the other day. And he's like, this is the first time in my entire life I wanted to eat something and you ate it first. Like, it, this, I mean, I just, my food is my food, and I'm really clear about what works for me and what doesn't. I happen to weigh and measure. It gives me tremendous peace of mind. Um, I just like, I mean, right now, like, anyone could hold up any item of food, and I would just be like, works, doesn't work, works, doesn't. Like, I just know. And the peace that comes from that and knowing the amount that goes in, it's tremendous. And, um... Anyway, I want to close with this story because it is so meaningful to me. It just happened a couple weeks ago. Um, only five minutes. 
I so I have this incredible job. I wish everybody could have my job because it's so amazing. And so what happens is I meet with the veterans and we get a handle on what kind of dog they're looking for and what their lifestyles are like. And then we get we look for and then get a dog. And then the veteran comes in to meet the dog. And so a couple weeks ago, um, this guy wanted a big silver pit bull. And I'm so happy when people want pit bulls. And so I found out like an hour or two before he was coming that the dog had been sedated to get her ears cleaned. And so she was going to be really out of it when he showed up. I felt terrible. She wasn't going to be herself. But anyway, um, so I said, I'm really sorry. The dog's going to be kind of loopy. And he's like, okay, it's fine. And he's sitting in a room in a chair. And I walk in with this dog who's wobbling on her feet and her eye, her pupils are huge. And he just takes a look at her and he throws his arms around her and he started crying and just saying, you are so beautiful. Oh, my God, I love you. I'm so happy. We're going to have so much fun together. And she's standing there, and her back legs start wobbling. And so he, like, eased her down on the floor, and he was massaging her and petting her and just saying the sweetest things to her. And she started snoring. And I was saying, I hope you don't mind snoring. And he's like, I love it. She's perfect. And I just, um, it, it was so beautiful. I honestly, I can't believe I got to be there for that. And um This is the thing, is that I was in this marriage for all these years, and I was settling for, I don't know what, I don't know what love looks like. I don't know what it's supposed to. I never thought I'd get married. I never thought I'd have a life. I figured I'd be alone with my head in the toilet. That's what my my therapist told me, and she was an eating disorder specialist, so (laughs) she knew. Um, And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, this is what love looks like? Someone could be loved like that? And I just thought, like, this is the program, right? Our little brains. I settled for being unhappy for so many years. My little brain was like, this is what love is. And then I see this man with this dog, and it was so, I thought, what if someone loved me a fraction of that amount? God does. What if I did? What if, what if, what if I met someone and it was like that, a little? What if it was just a little bit like that? And it just was like, I have no idea what to expect. And if I turn it over, amazing, amazing things happen. I have this job that is beyond my wildest dreams. I get to witness people loving a dog. This man, he was spooning the dog on the heart. We were on concrete, and he's lying on the ground. I have pictures if you want to see them. It's incredible. He wanted me to take pictures to show his mom. You guys. Anyway, I just love that. I just feel like I'm so inspired right now. I know that the theme of today's, of this weekend's uh, convention, joyful journey, stepping into freedom. And that's what I feel like I'm doing right now. I'm just like, all right, God, I am along for the ride. I don't know what's supposed to happen. I mean, I'm in a life I don't recognize, right? I'm single. I'm working full time. It's so many hours. I don't know what's supposed to happen or when it's supposed to happen, but I don't have to know, and it doesn't matter because I have this program, I have abstinence, and I have a higher power, and it's just already, it's beyond my wildest dreams. So um, I just want to keep coming back. You know, who would think a person would want to keep coming back after 28 years? But the thing is that it just keeps getting better and better. And so I don't know where else I would go. I feel like there's so much love and support here. Um, There's the spirituality. There's higher power. uh, There's people that eat out of the garbage can. I mean, what could be better than that? So I'm going to keep coming back, and I hope you guys keep coming back with me. And uh, we'll do this together. Awesome. Is there a second speaker? Okay. Thank you, Merritt, so much. That was really great.
There is another speaker. Nancy was going to introduce him. Come on up, Nancy. Okay. Uh, yeah, so I'm Nancy Compulsible Reader. Hi, everybody. Uh, so, yes, our second speaker, uh, I felt it was my responsibility as your speaker getters that I have some from the south, some from the north. And so I asked down the people in the southern part of the state, I said, uh, uh, who should, you know, give me some recommendations. And they said, go to the podcast. There's some fantastic people to listen to. And so uh, I listened to lots of your podcast and uh, their podcast and uh, listened to a person, and he had a diversity to his story. He's been here a long time, and he'll tell you more. Um, so let's invite Peter to Thank you. Can, can you hear me okay? Ah, there we are. Thank you, Nancy. I'm Peter, a compulsive overeater. Only in OA would a single, well, not single, but a white, straight male add diversity to a group. <laughs> Seriously. I have been on a couple of diversity panels, and I just laugh. But in a way, I am really unique. If you're new or sort of new, maybe if you're not new and you're waiting to hear your story and you haven't heard your story or you're looking for someone to identify with and you don't find that, stay. I came in, I'm 51. Uh, I came to my first meeting. It'll be 33 years next weekend. Uh, July 4th weekend, 1983. I was 18. Uh, Today I weigh about, I'm going to guess, I haven't been on a scale in a couple weeks, about 189, 190-ish. It's about eight pounds more than I usually am. I'll get into that in a moment. Um, I weighed about 145, 150 pounds. So it was really thin. I was in my anorexic phase. I've gone as high as 235. So I've done a little bit of both. Um, it took me five years of going to meet. Um, Three years of going to meetings till I met another straight white male who was not um, who was either normal weight or underweight or something like that. And if I was going to wait around and try and find, oh, now I can identify. There's someone like me. I wouldn't be here at all. I mean, when I started coming to meetings, my first meeting uh, on that July Fourth weekend was in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, outside Washington D.C. At the time, I was dating a woman uh, in college. She had lost about sixty pounds. I met her just at that point, you know, the bungee cord where it hits the bottom <laughs> and then starts to go back up. School had ended. Uh, she stayed down at school for a summer session. And, I, you know, I went to see her two weeks afterwards, and she had gained, like, you know, 15 pounds. I was like, oh, my God. You know, and I had just lost a ton of weight, too. And um, I remember both of my parents who were divorced were going to OA at the time. And I remember hearing from both of them, you, you know, you're a compulsive overeater. You need to go check out OA. And I was like, I don't know. Well, now I had a good reason. I had to help somebody else. <laughs> so I'm like, let's go to this meeting. And it was an awful meeting. Uh, and... For some reason, I went back to another meeting on my own. And, of course, it's all suburban housewives, middle-aged suburban housewives, probably younger than I am now. But when you're 18, anything over 23 is old. 
So it was an old group. And, but in there, I heard at that meeting, and I remember it so clearly, people were talking about their feelings, their emotions, why they ate. And at 18, I didn't have the emotional vocabulary to put into words what I was feeling. But I, as soon as I heard it, I knew it. And I'm like, yes, of course. That's exactly what's been going on my entire life. And this is what's been going on in my entire family, who are all compulsive overeaters and alcoholics and drug addicts. And I'm, that's where I identified. It wasn't with the outside. It wasn't the demographics. It was you felt the same way I felt it was the same reason I went to the food. I got the same relief. I did the crazy stuff with food that you know other people did, and I could identify. And that's where I knew, okay, this is the place for me. And I didn't think I'd be here 33 years. Um, and so I started going back to meetings. Uh, yes, I identified, but then I had people like, get a sponsor, get a sponsor, get a sponsor, and... There was this statuesque woman, she was about 22 at the time, and I'm like, okay, she's going to be my sponsor. <laughs> she's like, well, you know, okay, my sponsees call me up, and you can call me at 6.30. I was not working at the time because uh, I was on break from summer, uh, summer break from college. So, I mean, literally 6.30 every morning I was up calling, this is what I was going to eat, this is, you know, and, and after about three or four weeks, she goes, this is great, but you know what, you need to find a guy to sponsor you. Uh, but... She got me on the way, going. And, um, you know, my whole life I'd battled with food. When I was a year old, I weighed 30 pounds. I was my mother's first child. I don't know if she knew what to feed me or not to feed me, but always feeding me. So I was a big kid, and I was always on a diet. Um, I was, uh, the term they used back in the 60s was husky. I was a husky kid. You never hear the word husky any longer. There's even husky jeans, you know, which I really hated. Couldn't have normal jeans. I had to get the husky jeans. And I look back at the pictures now. Today, no one would have said a thing. Back in the 60s, different standards. And always put on a diet. From a young age, you know, you can't have this, you can't have that. You know, don't have dessert, have an apple. You know, got the lecture from the doctor at like six years old. And, um, and that just set up that pattern. So by the time I got to OA, I knew I had absolutely no control with the food. And the only way I lost weight is if someone else took control. And, and the way I lost weight when I was in college was, you know, I put on all this weight, the freshman 20 or whatever it was, and none of my clothes fit. I had one pair of jeans that fit, and that was it. And, you know, over uh, winter break was when the first time I started hearing about OA, and I'm like, mm, forget about that. Put that off for a while, did till the summer. And when I went back to college, all of us in the dorm would go eat at the same time. And I'd say, all right, what, what should I, I, I got to lose weight. Nothing fits. Which, and they'd say, okay, have this. Can I have more of that? No. That was my food plan. And then we'd go to the gym later on, work out. And so basically, uh, I had a food sponsor before I knew what one was. And it was sort of the collective group. Can I have seconds? No. Can I have that? Yes. And that's literally what I did. But I knew when summertime was coming around, they weren't going to be there. And I knew, left to my own devices, I'd just go crazy. And I'd lost, I don't know, enough weight where it was pretty significant. And I had this idea that if I got down to 170 pounds, my life would get better. 
grades would improve. Social life would definitely improve. Uh, I'd feel better about myself. I was very shy, you know, whatever. Well, I got down to 170. Obviously, that was not the number because nothing changed. 160 must be the number. Okay, let's get down to 160. And I was working out at the gym, and I mean, I had my body fat measurement was like 5%. I mean, I was, you know, I was getting sick. I was so thin. Nothing changed. Well, obviously, 160 is not the number. It must be 150. So I go down to 150. I got down to about 146 pounds. Um, and it was, you know, I mean, it was definitely that bulimic mindset. And it was like if I had more than one slice of a tomato at lunch, I knew I was just going to go crazy and blow up on the food. And so it was very, very, very restricted because I was afraid, uh, left to my own devices, that um, I'd gain all the weight back. And I didn't want to do that. And that's sort of my, men- my thinking when I first came to my first OA meeting. And, you know, I got into OA, and I did not get abstinent at first. Uh, it was very hard. One, uh, the girl I took to the meeting, uh, my binge buddy, she was not interested in OA. And she sort of wanted to keep things the way they were. So that was a struggle. And I got a sponsor at the time, another sponsor. There's only one person absent. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia. There's like eight people in the meeting. One person with a year of abstinence. It was this nurse from New, uh, Boston. And she was also an AA. And she goes, look, my food plan, you're going to follow what I do. It's gray sheet. And um, my sponsees do what I do. I'm an AA. I don't drink. So my sponsees don't drink. I thought... Um, Okay, singleness of purpose here, folks. Uh, This is OA. I'm 18. You're taking the food away from me. You are not taking the booze away. I am sorry. You know, I'm not going to live like a monk. So I just didn't tell her about the booze part, you know. And somehow I just couldn't stay abstinent. You know, I'd go out and I'd get drunk and I'd call Domino's and, you know, so after about three weeks, she fired me. And, uh, And I only bring that up because literally I got abstinent. Uh, about a month after I got sober. So I was back and forth, back and forth. You know, I can't be honest with one substance and completely dishonest with the rest of it and, and have any type of recovery. Half measures availed us nothing, and I got nothing. Um, but I went to meetings every week, tried to work the program, tried to have a sponsor, tried to sponsor people, but I wasn't really willing to put everything down. And, you know, it just wasn't my time. You know, the other thing is, is that, you know, people struggle. I'm trying to get absent. No, no, no. Sometimes it's just not the time. You know, if I want to know God's will, all I have to do is open my eyes. And it may be that right now is not the time. It's not, doesn't mean it gives me the excuse to go out and binge. But there's a time, and I don't, you know, I only know it in hindsight, that that's when I was supposed to get absent. And this is when something, this is when the recovery kicks in. I can't push my recovery that's the thing I've discovered after all these years. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to recommit myself to the steps. I'm going to get back into it. I'm going to work the steps and do this, and I do that. And now I go, okay, so what did not go your way? Is it the job? Is it the relationship? Is it the weight? What's not going your way that you have to recommit to the steps? And, gee, if I work it just a little harder, then it's going to go my way. Then I'm going to get you know, all the promises and everything else. I work the steps, but then the steps have to work me. I can't work the steps and say, okay, now that I'm working the steps, where's my bonus? You know, where's that job? Where's that relationship? Where is that goal weight? 
You know, it says in the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, meaning there is no other result. I'm not going to get goal weight if I work the steps. That's not what the 12th step says. I'm not going to get the job of my dreams if I work the steps. I'm not going to get the relationship. I'm going to have a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. And from that spiritual awakening, that's where everything flows. So when someone's like, okay, I've got to really recommit myself to the program and do that, it's like, what's not working? Okay, maybe we need to stop taking control and turn it over to a higher power and turn my recovery over to a higher power. My life is not my business if I'm turning it over to a higher power. My recovery is also not my business. That's why I have a sponsor. I'll say to my sponsor, how am I doing? Fine. Yeah, it's usually our conversation. <laughs> you know, because my problems all come to, I, you know, unless I have a health problem, everything comes down to romance and finance. That's really just about any problem there is. It's romance or finance. And then I'll call up and I'll say, oh, I'm having a horrible day. And my sponsor goes, oh, hold on, let me think. Are you going broke? You know, he'll start going through the one or two things that I usually go through. I mean, because he knows, you know, he's been my sponsor for 10 years now. And he just knows. And there are very few things. There are very few issues today. That, 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 that are the triggers. I've worked it down to these couple of things that probably are never going to go away. You know, character defects are a lot like burners on a, on a gas stove. You know, uh, you can turn the burners down, but the pilot light is always going to be on. That pilot light of addiction will always be on. And at any point, I can talk, turn all four burners on. You know, it's not that I'm not working my program, but I have to realize that that pilot light of addiction never goes away. And I forgot about that because I got abstinent, got into the program, did all the stuff, got sober. Um, I actually got abstinent and I graduated from college, got sober, had no idea what I was going to do with my life. I couldn't get a job interview. Um, and so I decided I was going to move to Paris. It sounded great. People are going, well, you got to, oh, I'm going to law school, got a job with IBM, da 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 da. I was getting no interviews. And they said, what are you going to do? And I go, I'm moving to Paris. Wow. That was a showstopper. Uh, so I said, hey, graduation present, give me a one-way ticket, backpack. I'm going to go check it out. I did not speak French. Um, I had been there once the summer before for like a week. Uh, and... Um, yeah, I'd been in London for the summer before and uh, went to OA. They had great OA there. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. But, you know, that was the plan. And so uh, after talking about it for six months, I went. And it was um, – and I remember I was about a month sober. I go to this – you know, I, I, there was an AA meeting. So I went to the AA meeting. And at the end of the AA meeting – and I was crazed at this time – and I have very, very distant French cousins in the south of France. But, so that was kind of my thinking. I was going to go over there, do something international. I don't know what. It was, you know, a geographic. And I, at the AA meeting and near the end of the meeting, you know, they asked for announcements. And I was at this point crazed because I hadn't been to a meeting in about three weeks and I was about a month sober. And I raised my hand. I said, I'm Peter from Charlottesville, Virginia. And um, I really need to talk to someone after the meeting because I'm going to drink. So this guy goes, hey, talk to me. Introduces himself. His name is Peter, and he's from Charlottesville, Virginia. And he was in Paris writing a book. And he goes, there's another guy here from Charlottesville. Introduced me. I was like, wow, what a coincidence. 
And this lady uh, walked up to me, named Nancy, and she goes, um, are you in OA? And I go, yeah. And I'm thinking, how the hell does she know I'm in OA? She goes, well, you know, we have an OA meeting in English downstairs starting in 15 minutes. Why don't you come on downstairs? We'd love to have you. And, um, and that's where I got absent. I spent two years there. And uh, it was wonderful. And it's so easy to be absent in Paris. And I just literally flew back yesterday from Paris. And it's a little bit harder today. But back then, you know, if you want lunch, it's between noon and 2. If you go in at 3, you're not getting served lunch, period. You can throw any amount of money to them. They're like, nope, done. You know, if I want the patisseries, I have to go into the patisserie. I can't go into the other shop and get that stuff. So it was very regulated. So if I didn't want the bread or the pastries, I didn't go into the bread shop. That was very easy. Today it's a little bit, it's become much more Americanized. You know, they serve around the clock. And and I definitely see the change after 30 years. Um, But back then, it was very, very easy to stay abstinent. And also, um, weighing and measuring, I didn't know the names of any of the foods. It was all metric. So I had to say to someone, okay, what should I say? What's the word for green beans? And uh, how much? And so they'd write it down on a piece of paper. I'd give it to you know, the store, just what I want. And that became my food plan, you know, because I didn't know what 400 grams was. You know, I had no idea. And so it was very easy. I turned my will in life, again, over to someone else in the program and followed their advice and their experience. And it was a wonderful time. And I had a sponsor there. And it's a small group. You know, it was probably about 21, 22 um, started to date someone in the program there. We had to share the same sponsor, so doing the chivalrous thing, I just said, you keep the sponsor, I'll find another sponsor, and uh, I didn't, and that relationship, surprise, didn't really work out too well. Uh, and um, that was 1987, and I didn't get another sponsor till 2005. So I came back to the United States, to Washington, D.C. for a year or two, and then moved to Philly. I was looking for a sponsor, you know. Had an AA sponsor, that kind of, you know, that'll work. No OA sponsor. Go to meetings, sponsored tons of people. I must have sponsored 100 people in OA. But never had an OA sponsor, was not calling my food, doing any of that stuff. And eventually I began drifting away. And, you know, I moved to L.A., couldn't find a sponsor. I mean, if you can't find a sponsor in L.A., forget it. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, and, you know, the weight began to pull, get go on, and I had no one to talk to. It started to drift away. OA doesn't work. And I couldn't figure out what it was, but it wasn't working. And I wouldn't talk about it, and I slowly drifted from meetings. And from about 99 to 2004, 2005, um, I basically stopped going to meetings. And that's the only time I did not go to meetings on a weekly basis in the 33 years. And um, I saw this uh, nutritionist, and she goes, well, you're having this sugar-free stuff. It's, it turns into sugar. You might as well just have sugar. Well, that's all I needed to hear. <laughs> I stopped eating sugar before Ben & Jerry's went national, and I kept hearing about Ben & Jerry's for years, so I went to town. And uh, I gained 70 pounds in a short amount of time, and just... But, you know, I could stop at any point. You know, when I was 145 and one more tomato, I was afraid to have another slice of a tomato because I just would lose it. At 235 pounds, I, I could eat all that I wanted because I could always stop tomorrow, and I knew I could. I just really wasn't ready to. It was weird how that mind worked. 
you know, that, well, I can have another pint of ice cream because the second pint doesn't really count. Somehow the calories don't get absorbed into the body. <laughs> There's some scientific principle that was working that I, I don't know what, but, you know, total delusion. And during that time, my father had died quite suddenly of a heart attack from the weight going up and down. He did not, never stayed in OA. And, um, you know, and there was some other stuff, and I had some of the same things. And I went to a doctor, and they couldn't figure out what it was. You know, my cholesterol was sky high. None of the medication would work. They do the test, which is now commonplace, where they check to see how much blockage you have. And the guy said, for your cholesterol and your weight, your pipes are totally clean. This is unprecedented that your arteries are clean as a whistle. And at that moment, I had that moment of clarity. I just thought, oh, hey, all those years of eating abstinently, that had kept me in great health. And that was the moment where I knew, oh, it worked. I went, eh. <laughs> Threw that thought away. Did not go back to OA for another three or four years and tried to struggle with it. And the uh, doctor said, here's the deal. You have a 100% chance of a heart attack. You will have a heart attack. You're going to have a heart attack. So it could be in two years or it can be in 20. What's your choice? Because if you do nothing, you'll have one in two years. If you really take care of yourself, maybe we can push it out 20, 30 years. Um, so he goes, I want you to lose 70 pounds. I don't care how you do it. And you're going to run the LA Marathon next year, and you're going to start running marathons. All my patients do it. And this guy was the expert in the United States. He had developed this new therapy, which is now commonplace, but I was in this experimental program, and he goes, this is what you're going to do. I was like, okay. So I started running, and running, from, running marathons, and that's how I lost the weight until I hurt my leg and gained, started gaining the weight back, and that's when I went back to OA. I thought, you know, I, this is the only thing that ever worked. It's the only thing where I never had a weight issue. I never had to have four different sets of uh, clothes in my closet. And so I went back to um, the kitchen sink meeting Saturday morning in Los Angeles, and there was a guy in the meeting that looked real familiar. I was like, it was a guy sponsored 15 years prior in Philadelphia who was living in L.A. I had no idea he was here. I thought, okay, that's my sign. Just like the the guy from Charlottesville, Virginia, in Paris, that was my sign. And... um, so at that meeting, I got a sponsor. I knew what the problem was. And he's been my sponsor ever since, and I've been absent ever since, and 10-plus uh, years this time around. 14 years before, six, a break. you know, And that happens a lot. And I needed that time away to go experiment and do whatever. I know today I can't have sugar. There's a lot of things I can have. I can't have sugar today. Maybe one day I can, but it's not really that important. That's the other thing. I'm not a slave, you know, to what I eat. It's like, you know, in France, what is this? I don't know. I know French, but I don't know all this stuff. Well, we'll find out. I couldn't do that at one year abstinent. You know, I can do that today. And if I don't like it, I don't like it. I don't have to have it. Or if it doesn't seem like what I thought it was going to be, okay, I'll order something else. You know, or I'll make do. And I have that flexibility today because of the program, (laughs) because of OA, because of working the steps. And, you know, today it's... um, I've got a wonderful life. I have a wonderful life because of OA. You know, I went back home. My parents really have to be in assisted living, my mother and stepfather. You know, my mother, she never was interested in the program. She went. She did the steps in about, you know, a couple hours. Didn't work. <laughs> you know, 
And she's literally waiting to die. She's 78. She can't walk. Not because she's not physically able. She just did, didn't want to anymore. And now she can't. And she's overweight and literally waiting to die. The difference between her and I is I stayed with OA. So I'm immensely gra- grateful for what I have today. And it's because of OA. Because I know it's waiting for me. It's very clear. And, um, you know... The first speakers spoke so many things I could relate to, you know, about work. Everything today is a choice for me. Um, and, you know, work, it's all how I look at it. Um, I, I work for one of those big, awful Wall Street firms, uh, cause all the problems in the world. And, um, you know, uh, as my brother likes to say, well, you have the one percenters. And I go, yeah. And it was interesting. I was listening to the uh, head of my wealth management division talk, and she goes, and she said to me, she goes, you know, they all have money. That's not what we give them. Your job is to provide peace of mind. That's really what your job is. And I had to really think about that and totally rethink what it is I do for a living. And that is what I do for a living. I provide peace of mind. And so when I go to work, I'm of service today. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world or the markets or anything else. My job is to help provide peace of mind and help people come to make the decisions that they need to make. It's like being a sponsor. It really is. And it's a wonderful job because I get to sit there and uh, give people my opinion all day long. And they listen. (laughs) There are very few jobs except for talk radio where you get to just talk, talk, talk. You know, and, um, you know, I get it all out at the office. And... um, it, it, it's lovely because um, it, it is a wonderful way for me to be of service. And, you know, I get to be of service in the program. I get to be of service with my family. And, um, you know, it um, – and part of that came about – I know I'm running out of time. You know, I had to really change my relationship with a higher power. I had a sponsor, and it was very difficult to understand this, who said, if you want to know God's will, open your eyes because it's happening. Your job is to accept it. And, you know, it really makes me think now, well, someone lost their job or this happened. or this. They must not be working a very good program. And I think that often. And then when it happens to me, it's like, no, this is part of the plan. This was God's will because there's something else that's developing out here. You know, I have to, I literally, in my morning meditation, I think of, and I got this from my sponsor. None of this is original. My life, it's like a movie. I have to approach it like a movie. Let, what's, what's the next scene in the movie? That's my day. And nothing's going to kill me today. That's what I've discovered after all these years in the program. As long as I stay abstinent and I try and do God's will and seek to do God's will and seek to be of service, there's nothing that's going to get me. If I lose my job, I lose my job. Because I'm not the person. I'm not Peter, the wealth manager. I'm Peter, the compulsive overeater. You know, if my marriage doesn't work out, I'm not Peter the married guy. I'm Peter the compulsive overeater. I have to remember, how do I identify who I am? Because that is really how I view the world. I'm a compulsive overeater today that's in recovery. And that's how everything goes. And, you know, with my higher power, it's happening because it's supposed to happen. So I need to accept that. And sometimes things don't go the way I think they should 
Um, but that's the way they're supposed to be. So I have to work on accepting that. And my kids act a certain way, and I think they should act a certain, a different way. Well, you know, I have a job as a parent to try and guide and steer them, but as parents know, you're very limited in that. Uh, I also have to be in acceptance as to who they are as people and what their path is. And their path may not be my path for them. And I have to accept that. And, you know, as I had one sponsor say, after the first miracle, it's rude to doubt. <laughs> you know, and my, my sponsor is like, okay, so are you bankrupt yet? He goes, you know, everything's worked out. You know, you've made it to 51 years, so something must be working. It's not you. Maybe it's your higher power. So maybe you're going to get taken care of through this latest incident. Just relax. And so that's what I try and do every day. Because all I did when I ate, all I wanted when I was binging was peace of mind. That's really what I wanted. And so today, I really, in my meditation, peace of mind. That's really what I want. And that's what I go for. My definition of happiness, which my sponsor ridicules, is um, a routine life with some pleasant surprises. <laughs> yeah, I love going to my meetings on a weekly basis. You know, I love having my abstinent food. I love a routine. Every once in a while, something special pops up. That, to me, is my definition of happiness. And you know, if I can just be in acceptance of God's will for me and God's uh, will for everybody else, then I'm okay. Nothing is going to get me, so to speak. Everything's going to be fine. And once I work from that premise, life is wonderful. And I just want to say one more time, thank you for my life. I mean, I can't, I, I've grown up here. I've spent a majority of my life in OA, and I have a wonderful life by any measurement. And it's only because I kept coming back to meetings, I kept doing it when it didn't seem to make sense, and I've just always gotten such wonderful, wonderful support from everyone in the rooms, and thank you.